presents In the Wilderness, Away, the sermon by the Rev. Jean Randall Bodman, presented on Sunday, December 8th, 2019. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. As the culture invites us to rush headlong into the warm sentiment of the season, into the frenzy of jollity, as the church tradition invites us to step aside, to slow down, and wait here at the darkest edge of the year, and to feel in that darkness the coming of the light, the coming into a season of hope and peace. Just as we are finding a healthy balance between these two poles, between the world with its noisy rush and the church with its expectant stillness, the lectionary hurls John the Baptist at us. Repent, he cries out crying not with the voice of the culture, be bright, be merry, and buy all the things, crying not even with the voice of our church culture, be still, look up, attend to God. No, John hauls up out of the desert, crying, repent, turn around, do it now, don't wait. Here is John in all his oddball weirdness, dressed in skins, unshaven, scraping a meager diet out of the wilderness. Wilderness beyond the Jordan River. It's not what we envision here in North America when we say the word wilderness. I don't know about you, but when I say that word, what comes into my mind is forests and roaring rivers and mountain fastnesses, lush and dense with life. In North America, wilderness is dangerous, but it's also beautiful and rich, full of wood for burning, water for drinking, and animals for hunting. It's a dangerous place, but also a life-sustaining place. John's wilderness was something else again, a severe and arid place, dangerous in its dryness. It's a daytime searing heat and glaring sun. It's nighttime drop in temperature. There was no wood for burning, no water for drinking, very few animals to hunt. A place to be got through quickly, as quickly as possible, and safe again into the fertile and watered valleys. Out in that forbidding wilderness, John is hanging out, feasting on his locusts and wild honey, and doing his preaching. Well, his ranting, really. Unlike the street preachers, most closely linked in our modern imagination with that kind of preaching, he didn't accost people on the city street. He didn't stand on the corner with a placard that said, Repent, the end is near. Instead, unexpectedly, The people left the streets and lanes and farm fields and went out to the edge of that wilderness, to the banks of the river that marked its border. They went out and they listened. Whole crowds of people from a vast area went out to hear what the wild man was yelling about, 
little bits of unchewed crickets flying out of his unshaven mouth. He called them all down into that water to be baptized, to be got ready for the kingdom that he said was coming, and for the one who was coming after him. Merriment? Forget about it. Contemplative stillness? He has not got the time. The realm of heaven is close and getting closer. Happy holidays indeed, you brood of vipers. <laughs> Repent. It's not a cozy word. It's not comforting or uplifting or inspiring. It conjures those images of street preachers and maybe a few movie versions of pulpit pounders. It has an aura of shame and peril around it, and 2,000 years of Christian art and literature to frighten even the most stout-hearted. Because, of course, what we hear, what we have been taught to hear in the word repent is stop being bad and start being good, or God is going to be so mad that he'll send you to hell to burn forever. It's not a request, it's not an urging, it's a threat. It makes God into a spiritual bully. Now, the human psyche is much more richly complicated than I certainly know, and probably most of us can know and appreciate. But I cannot imagine that the whole of the Judean countryside would have stopped what they were doing and traveled on foot to the edge of the wilderness for a lovely afternoon of spiritual bullying. Bullying is, after all, of only limited use. It can work. Threats of punishment can certainly change people's behavior, at least for a while. But I have never yet heard of bullying changing someone's heart or mind in a healthy direction. I have never yet heard of bullying moving the bullied one toward the one doing the threatening. I think that to repent is something much more interesting, more life-giving, and more ongoing, something much more engaging and difficult than towing the line and changing our behavior because we are going to be in big trouble if we don't. The Greek word that we translate metanoia, that we translate as repent, metanoia, means at its root to change your mind, to change your heart, to turn around and see things in a new way. Right about now, that sounds entirely appealing and desirable to me, unlike the threat version of repent. I realize that when I am too tired, or too stressed by the world, my mind becomes, as Nadia Boltz Weber once put it, a prisoner to about half a dozen neurological grooves that just funnel the same exact thoughts through my brain over and over and over again. It's repetitive and boring and life-stunting. Now, let me pause and say, for some people, and a few of them are my nearest and dearest people, this repetitive thinking is actually a symptom of a, an anxiety disorder. And that's not what I'm talking about. That's an illness that deserves treatment. It's not a stumbling block. 
But for many of us, the patterns of thought that we fall into under stress or boredom, or when we are annoyed at the people closest to us for doing all those intensely annoying things that only the people closest to us can do, when we are frightened or angry, we fall into patterns that trap our minds and harm our spirits. What if these grooves, these stories that we keep telling ourselves, are not true? What if they were ever only partially true, or even completely false? Is it possible that the reflexive internal responses we, we have to someone or some relationship could be completely wrong, or at least incomplete? That boss or neighbor or coworker that you think is a fool, well, maybe they are. But chances are that they are not only that. They are more and other and better things than that also. Is it possible that your expectation of that fool brings out the foolish in them? What might happen if we interrupted ourselves mid-sigh and asked ourselves a new question about that foolish person? What would happen if, with genuine curiosity, we asked them a new question about themselves and then listened? For some of us, the most entrenched and pernicious neural grooves are not the ones we have about other people, but the ones that we have about ourselves. Grooves that create the same thought over and over. And I invite you to think about that for just a moment. What thoughts do you think about yourself, to yourself, in the privacy of your own mind? Would anyone else who truly loves you think those same thoughts? Would you think those same thoughts about someone else you love? With all their unique foil, flaws and foibles, still, would you think about another person in the same way you allow yourself to habitually think about yourself? Do you think those are the thoughts that a God who loves you has about you? Pastor Nadia Boltz Weber wrote, as someone who believes that we are all simultaneously sinner and saint, who believes that none of us is ever only just one thing, that there is bad in the best people and good in the worst people, I am not suggesting that thinking only positive affirmations about how wonderful we are would be accurate or even healthy. But I am suggesting that some of us tend to allow only the negative aspects of who we are to enter into the equation of how we see ourselves. Some of these thoughts have been firmly implanted since childhood. I wonder if any of you remember a 1990s sitcom called Mad About You. It was a story of two 30-something newlyweds, Paul and Jamie, living in New York, and it was a silly, lighthearted story of their daily happenings. 
But one scene has stuck with me since I saw it 30 years ago. The wife, Jamie, is seen becoming increasingly agitated and monosyllabic while she's on the phone. She's pacing frantically around the bedroom. Finally, she hangs up, flops down on the bed, and says, Ugh! How can my parents always, always push all of my buttons? To which her husband responds, That's easy. They installed them. <laughs> well, just so. The experiences we have as young people install some of our thought patterns. And if we are not careful, we could revolve around those same thought patterns for the whole rest of our lives. But they can also be installed at any time, by a parent, a sibling, a coach, a boss, a child, a coworker, a partner. Sometimes those negative thoughts arrive like a stab, and we know it. Sometimes they land soft as a feather, but they land and they settle and they stay. What if one meaning of repentance for us means being freed from thinking these same thoughts over and over and over, including the thought patterns we have about ourselves? Perhaps the call to repent is not a threat, but an invitation, an invitation to see ourselves, our neighbors, and the world in a new way. Maybe repentance, as Pastor Nadia says, means that God is offering us some brain spackle for those neural grooves. As the news of the world continues like a drumbeat, as sorrows touch the lives of many people that I hold dear, I think I would find this refreshing. Some new patterns of thinking. Now, John the Baptist invited all those people to come down into the water to be baptized, the ritual that in that time meant a reaffirmation of the covenant with God. John invited Jewish people and Gentile people, all the people. Then he accused the religious leaders of the day of being a brood of vipers who thought that they could slide by by their rank and status as descendants of Abraham. Not a bit of it. God can raise up new descendants of Abraham. Come on down, change your mind, step into the water. There, a daughter of Abraham. Go under the water. There, a son of Abraham. And then John promised all of the people that Jesus would be coming and that Jesus would have a winnowing fork in his hand to separate the chaff from the wheat and burn that chaff with unquenchable fire. Yikes. I have a formative memory of visiting a friend's church when I was about 13, and I heard those words hurled across the pulpit at us. The pastor was red-faced and panting just slightly as he yelled, yelled at us, repent or burn. I was terrified. I had never heard language like that in a church. And I remember how shocked I was at coffee hour after the service ended that people were eating cookies and sipping coffee and smiling warmly at one another. And the pastor was beaming at anyone who came within a 10-yard radius. Had they all forgotten what had just happened in the sanctuary 
Were they all just a little bit mad? It made me think about those words a lot over the years and how they could possibly be helpful. Matthew, who was writing in about the year 80, was motivated by the idea of the consummation of all things, that the, apoc- that the apocalypse was coming, that the apocalypse was not the end of all things, but the beginning of all things, because it was the beginning of God's realm. He wrote his gospel to be delivered orally, intended to engage the hearer emotionally and intellectually, to revive their passionate hope about Jesus's imminent return. It's a book intended to draw us in, not spit us out in despair. So while it may be that somewhere on earth there are people in whom there is no kernel of wheat left, that in general is not how wheat works. Each stalk has a kernel surrounded by a husk, the chaff, which goes thin and almost papery when the grain is ripe. The winnowers would take their forks and toss the wheat up into the breeze to separate that useless husk, which, light as air, would blow away, and then the grain would fall to the ground to be harvested. It is not that some people are chaff and some people are wheat. We are all both woven together. Sometimes chaff would later be raked up and used as fuel, and it would burn hot and quick. Maybe the invitation is not to repent or burn, but to repent and burn, to allow all that is chaff, those old ways of thinking, those stuck, self-destructive, or self-serving ways of thinking, to be burned away. Paul wrote in his letter to the church in Rome, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Don't be transformed by the renewing of your lifestyle, not by the renewing of your workout or the renewing of your credit history. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I pray for us this Advent that our hearts and minds may be renewed, that, self, that destructive self-talk that self-aggrandizing self-talk, that mental grooves that keep us from accepting and giving love will be broken open. Repent will never be a completely easy word, but it does invite us to turn around. And turning and change are hard, but it's important to remember that we are what we are being asked to change and turn toward. We're being invited to turn towards a realm where our minds are free from the burdens of self-justification, self-denunciation, and self-reproach. Where our hearts are free from the suffocating fear of unbelonging. Where we see others, all others, in the same way. Free from our prejudices and stereotypes. A realm where we question assumptions we've always accepted where we can open our minds to question cultural structures that we've usually accepted because they've protected us, open our minds to see that these same structures have left others out or harmed them, 
open our hearts to question systems that deliver unequal education or justice or health care. This Advent, as we pause at the darkest edge of the year, let us listen to John's invitation. Change your mind. Turn your heart. God is near. Amen. Listen, listen, listen.